0: and gain access to patron only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 2 for Tea. This week's guest is Diana Fleischnew, and Diana is an evolutionary psychologist. She teaches at the University of Portsmouth. Her PhD work was on disgust, and she is currently working on a book. I can mention the book, can't I, Diana?
1: Yes, you can, <laughs> even though I, I should never have done it and to begin with. People
0: keep asking me, "Where is it? Where is it going? Is it coming out?" Oh well, I already dismayed a guest last time by asking him what had happened about his book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was an uncomfortable moment for him. Um, uh, Diana is uh, working on ideas towards a book. <laughs> I have no idea at what that's, stage. That's much better. That? I, I'm thinking all the time. She's <laughs> spending a lot of time thinking about um, this, the topic of um, emotional manipulation within uh, behavioral manipulation within relationships, uh, sexual and romantic relationships, I think in particular, maybe all kinds of relationships and is applying behaviorism to those topics. And uh, I think under the general rubric um, of how to train your boyfriend, which I'm sure that will is what it's called. we will get yeah. into, when I told my housemates that they all, um, well, some of them wanted your book and some of them wanted your book not to be accessible to their Burned. boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were mixed feelings about it. Um, and uh, Diana is also a sentientist, um, I think I probably won't go into that in great detail because I had a previous episode of this podcast, in a previous episode of this podcast, I interviewed Jamie Woodhouse uh, on the topic of sentientism. And uh, she is also um, polyamorous uh, and she is a uh, vegan. Um, And I I will put all the links to your various materials in the show notes, but I would encourage you to go Check out her blog and her other podcasts. All your other podcasts were quite hilarious, which oh, thank you makes me feel a certain degree of pressure since I'm not. It's okay. I, Humor comes from just chilling out, and well,
1: <laughs> I, I, I just come from I, I'm just that way, and my brother is too. I think it's uh, my. Our parents were very much not, you know. Uh, Congratulate us for everything. If we told a story and it wasn't good, they'd be like, "Wah oh, <laughs> wah." No. Whereas I,
0: yeah, um, I grew up as I basically I have a sister, but we didn't grow up together. So I grew up as a very very introverted only child, and as a result, I just have no humor. I <laughs> just humor. Oh no! Humor. Well, just, I, I guess
1: <laughs> my parents. Uh, so we, yeah, I was just looking at your background. Uh, first of all, Jamie. Told me that I had to answer every question through the lens of sentientism. I'm sorry. You should
0: ignore it. You have I didn't to make ignore, the rules. You have to ignore it. He can be very, he needs training. He needs training.
1: I imagine. And most people Don't reinforce
0: this. Don't <laughs> reinforce this bad behavior.
1: So, uh, so yeah, my mom is Portuguese and my dad is German, uh, German and Jewish. And um, my, my parents really, you know, teasing and playfulness and making jokes and things were one of their main ways of, of getting along. Although my mother's quite sensitive and my father is quite, uh, I mean, I would call myself callous. I don't think he would mind if I called him that way. So I think that was one thing that, that did, uh, mean that they didn't stay together forever, but they did, they did make a lot of jokes. And so I grew up like that. And I don't think, uh, well, actually a, a lot, I know a lot of very funny Indian people. So that's that, uh, you know, you, you, is your mother Indian or your father?
0: My father. Okay. Um I I think that um there are a lot there are a lot of funny Indians, but um Parsi's in particular tend to be funny peculiar rather than funny ha ha. <laughs> and I did once attend a Parsi stand-up comedy evening. Um and I think the less said about that the better. Let's move swiftly on to another topic. <laughs> Um, so, and, and you are coming to us from Albuquerque. Which yeah, is are the you place. coming from us? For, are you in Buenos Aires? I'm in London. London now. Oh, Yes, okay. I moved to London um, a, a few months ago. And I actually know Albuquerque is a place I know well. I have friends who live in Los Ranchos. Okay. Um, and I have stayed there multiple multiple times and have many fond memories. Oh, um, that's nice. So, um, Diana, one of the things that um, one of the things you do, I think, is to look at patterns of behavior um, and try to analyze from a, an evolutionary psychology point of view what is going on to make explicit the motivations that are usually hidden. Um, yeah, can you talk about some of the ways in which our the way we behave is manifesting kinds of ways in which we want to manipulate people. Um, give me a good example of how we, a way in which we manipulate each other in relationships.
1: Sure. So I am interested in this combination of uh, evolutionary psychology and behaviorism. And from the evolutionary p- psychology perspective, we get the idea that communication is manipulation and that organisms are trying to get one another to do what they want. Uh, organisms of the same species and organisms of different species, but uh, in romantic relationships, there's really a lot at stake. Whereas from the behaviorist perspective, you get actually how that manipulation might work. So we know from a long, you long know, history of behaviorist research that animals will work for reward and that they will avoid punishment. We know that the quicker the reward comes about, the more the behavior is reinforced, the quicker the punishment comes about, the more readily the behavior is punished. And so there's some simple rules about behaviorism that I think are actually manifested in human psychology in order to control one another's behavior. So one of the long-standing pieces of research in evolutionary psychology is men and women are different in relationships in that the threat to that relationship is different for men and women. So for men, the biggest possible way that they could be defected against in a relationship is for a woman to have another man's baby. And then he is footing the bill. He's investing heavily in that child. And for a woman, uh, it's to be divested in. So a woman knows that the children that come out of her are her own. She knows those are her genes in the next generation. And the worst thing that can happen is somebody just suspends uh, provisioning her or defending her. And so one of the main ways that we try and manipulate each other is women try and manipulate men to give them cues of attention and investment. And men, uh, actually spend less time trying to manipulate women in my view than, than women trying to spend manipulating men, but men are often mostly trying to get out of being controlled and, uh, trying to defy manipulation in various different ways. So one of the ways is, you know, it feels good to get attention. And one thing that people do especially is to punish somebody who doesn't give them the cues of attention that they want because attention is the cue that you're getting uh, invested in. And you see this in adult people, but you also see this in in babies. Uh, there's a reason why bouncing a baby up and down takes you know, all of your attention and takes your whole body to do is because the baby is, is not specifically interested in being rocked. The baby has developed a preference for that, in my view, evolved a preference for that because it means that they have all your attention. It's a cue of security.
0: Mm, that's interesting. I'm told that when I was young, I used to grab my mother's chin when she
1: was talking to somebody else, and I would try to physically pull her chin <laughs> right to face <excuse> me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I have uh, ideas about you know furthering this line of work into talking about parents and children because I think some of the modern parenting psychology, popular psychology, really yields parents to the manipulation of their children without... You know, in in a, in a naive way, without a cynical view of what children are actually doing.
0: Mm, mm. Uh, no, I'm extremely cynical about children. I have I have <laughs> to say, I know that for you, cynicism. You've said that you think that cynicism is a good quality. Um, yeah, explain explain yourself, Doctor Fleischman. Sure, cynicism is trying to
1: figure out the perhaps worst or most manipulative. Reason that you might be doing something. And it's called cynicism, and it has a bad rap because people are trying to present themselves in a noble and benevolent way. And they don't want to think that these cynical explanations for their behavior are true. But just as you can be, you know, radically honest with others, you can be radically honest with yourself. And the more shame and anxiety you feel about having immoral motivations. The less honest, you can be with yourself about these, maybe not necessarily immoral motivations. I don't think manipulation isn't in itself immoral, but you can feel, if you don't feel bad about these things, if you can just look at them head on, then you can actually consider how you are interacting with other people and how you can improve your behavior. So if you, you know, can resign yourself that you are somebody who's trying to get others to do what you want, in interpersonal relationships and you know even very agreeable people are doing this then you can try and figure out how to get what you want in ways that are less destructive to those relationships and you see this especially in romantic relationships where women give low level punishment to to a, a partner a lot this is sometimes called nagging or a man gets punished for some behavior that happens that's unrelated to the actual behavior the woman wishes to punish. She just, it just gets waylaid in that way. And then that actually doesn't get you what you want. So if you are more aware of what you want, you can facilitate your behavior or, or trying to change the behavior of others in, in better ways. And if you have an evolutionary perspective on what you want, you can try to, it's more difficult to do, change your motivations and you know entirely it's it's not the end of the world if if somebody doesn't text you back immediately or doesn't give you the attention that you want it's just feels that way because of evolutionary mechanisms
0: mm, so it's crucial that i that is it's crucial that your punishment is immediately after the action and um, i think that you when you're talking when you were talking about rewards and this is something i've heard from training uh, dogs as well as training boyfriends, I guess, is that you should give unpredictable uh, rewards. So for example, if you want to train your dog to come, um, you should give the dog, a tr- at, at the beginning, you should always give the dog treats when, when he comes, he or she comes to, reinfo- to establish the behavior. But once the dog is in the habit of coming, you should only give him a treat sometimes. Um, so that if you don't, if at one, if at some point you don't have a treat with you, um, the dog will not will know that there might be a treat forthcoming in the future. So he will he will still come in this kind of expectation retreat. Is that is that a fair summary? How would you apply that to a relationship?
1: Yeah. So random kind of bouts of reinforcement or, or even random punishment can be very effective. So especially when you're thinking about random reinforcement, there's a thing called extinction. That's when a behavior stops being produced. And if you give someone a reward every time they do a behavior, their extinction, when you stop giving them that reward, is going to be very quick. If you think about it, they have a very consistent history of getting rewarded every time. And then they're not going to try to do the behavior that much that many times afterwards, you can sort of think about it as a, as a distribution, a statistical distribution around, uh, the reward of that behavior. And if they do it 10 more times and they don't get rewarded, it's possible that they're going to give up. But if they've been rewarded intermittently, like really randomly, and sometimes they get a reward three times in a row, and sometimes they do the behavior five or six or 10 times and they don't get rewarded, then that makes the distribution, uh, A lot wider around whether or not they're going to get, you know, the the number of times they do that behavior before they get rewarded. And so when you see giving somebody just random reinforcement, it makes the behavior less likely to extinguish if it's not rewarded.
0: So it's like the difference between a vending machine and a slot machine.
1: Yes, exactly. Very oh. good. Yeah. So, yeah, a vending machine, like or the the pokies, as Claire Lyman likes to call it, the pokies, they uh, they give you a very intermittent reinforcement, and that's part of why gambling is addictive.
0: You mean a, you mean a slot machine, but in or a, a slot vending machine? Yeah. Vending machine. <laughs> yeah. If you put your one pound in and your chocolate bar doesn't come out, that's right. You're, you're just not. You're not going to use that machine again.
1: You're not going to put another pound in,
0: right? Yeah, but the slot machine, you can go on putting. Your pound coins in forever, waiting and house yes. pick. So there's the yeah, poker machines, slot machines, but that's part of why
1: gambling is so addictive, is because the uh, of of the random nature of the of the reinforcement, and that's another reason why it's difficult to uh, to extinguish, because somebody can can do a behavior hundreds of times uh, and then get rewarded at the end of that, and so your your mind has a model of how many times you you could do a behavior before you expect to get rewarded. And it will try, you know, before giving up to extend and see how many more times it it needs to do it.
0: This is very counterintuitive to me when I'm thinking about relationships because I, is it not, would it not be very stressful to be in a relationship with somebody whose rewards and punishments were random? Um, And does not it go against our kind of, the ideal that you should always be uh, thoughtful. For example, my housemates, two of my housemates who are in a relationship, always one of them always brings the other tea in bed, because one of them is a more earlier riser than the other. And um, I was talking to them before before coming on here to record, and he said. I'm, maybe I should keep Paul on hooks by only sometimes bringing him tea. <laughs> um, so is it is, is it is it not stressful, that kind of um, insecurity, or, or does it add to the excitement? So in terms of random
1: reinforcement, random reinforcement is, you know, for behaviors that you want, that you can give somebody random reinforcement. I don't think that your housemate is rewarding her uh, partner for being in bed. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, I discovered Jeffrey was staying in bed for like long periods of time. <laughs> and I realized it was because uh, oftentimes if he stayed in bed long enough, I would bring him coffee and or get back in bed with him. And I was like, I've obviously just trained you to stay in bed and see what happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was just like not not really what I want to do. If I want you to get up, then I'll give you a coffee. Immediately when you get up, and that was one we had a little because he's aware of what I'm doing. We had a little jokey thing where I said, uh, you know how if you're trying to train some uh, an animal to do something, you train them for the first the first step. And so I was joking with him that he had to just put his legs out of the bed. And then I would give him his coffee <laughs> uh, because that's the first stage. But uh, no, it doesn't keep you on on tenter hooks. I mean, it depends on how deliberative you're you're being. So these are behaviors that you're already doing. You, uh, in this particular case, I don't think that she's she's rewarding him for anything. Uh,
0: he, uh, but he, but but yeah. uh, yes,
1: or he's rewarding him. He's rewarding him. Is it two yes. men, two yes. women? Okay.
0: yes. <laughs> uh, what about the randomness of punishment? Is that more? Uh, that seems inherently more more stressful to me. Um, not knowing whether a behavior will be will be punished or not, it is stressful,
1: and that's part of why it's effective. So one interesting thing about behaviorism in the 1960s uh, and and 50s is that they were politically motivated and they saw you know the prison system and war and and everything going on in the world, and they wanted to tell people that punishment doesn't work in order for them to try and stop using it. And so they, they made a lot of caveats. They said, oh, you know, if you don't do the punishment immediately after the behavior, or if you don't do it in the right context, it won't necessarily work. But punishment does work and and random punishment also does work. Although if you try and make a behavior happen with punishment, it's going to be less intrinsically motivated. I'll give you an example. So like if you, if you have a dog who comes to you and you give the dog a treat, you know, when he comes, then he's going to be very motivated to to come towards you. But if you punish a dog sometimes when they don't come quickly enough and they come to you and then they get punished, then there's going to be some fraughtness Mm -hmm. to whether they come. They're not going to be totally motivated. And there's a story that I tell about how I had a boyfriend uh, for a couple years who uh, didn't give me a card or a physical gift, gave me a Kindle present. Uh, on our first birthday that we spent, my first birthday that we spent together. And uh, I like to have tangible tokens of affection. And so I kind of, I mean, this was uh, several years ago uh, before I had really thought about these principles very much. I lost my temper very badly. I didn't really want to, but I had a meltdown and I was very much in love and very, uh, yeah, just very, very stressed out that this was some indication of something. I, I massively overreacted. And even though I was sorry that I overreacted and he gave me something after that, the following year, a following birthday, he gave me a really beautiful um, set, a Peridot set of earrings and, and a necklace. And I said, you know, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. But he wasn't really getting a lot of gratification. I could tell like when he gave me the gift he didn't, he didn't feel, he didn't seem really happy. And I found that he had gone to this jewelry store three times and talked to the sales lady. And he had spent a lot of time agonizing over what kind of gift to get me because he was afraid of, of being punished. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the spirit of gift giving that I wanted to inspire in him, but it's what I ended up doing with a punishment a full year before that. So, when you want somebody to give you gifts, and this is uh, something that I figured out, is that I, you know, I have an Amazon wish list. I have things on there, and I've made it very easy to for somebody to give me a gift. A, a gift is really an indication of how well somebody knows you. It's somebody figuring out what your preferences are. They they take those that knowledge of you and they put it together. And if somebody gets you a really good gift, they're telling you look how much I'm I'm thinking about you, look how much of my mind you inhabit or own or whatever the case may be. But uh, if you give somebody a, a clue of what you want, like if you pick out a gift, it doesn't feel as good to get that gift because you're not getting that cue. And And honestly, when somebody gets you a really perfect gift, it's also a signal that they've taken the trouble to learn enough about you to manipulate you because they're invested in your relationship together. Mm. so I think that uh, when I started putting things on Amazon you know late at night or have a drink and browse things and put things on my wish list I would forget what I had put on there but somebody would give me a gift that I really liked and so that was a way that I was fooling myself to better gratify what I thought were not entirely legitimate motivations for what people people's behavior towards me
0: you were uh, in one of the other podcasts when you were talking about this um i I guess it's a quite costly signal of affection. well, you've made it cheaper you've made it easier and more accessible by creating the Amazon wish list but it's quite a costly signal of your affection that you um that you have taken the trouble to know the person well and remember and research their preferences and you actually said that couples i didn't understand how this works that couples tend to remember each other's preferences worse as the relationship continues?
1: Yeah, so there's a, a, a some literature, not that much, about how well people understand each other's preferences. So there's some research on how much mothers and fathers know what their kids like to eat, how much couples know what the other person likes to eat, what kinds of pastimes they like, what are their favorite colors. There's even a study about how well people can anticipate what kitchenettes the other person will like, believe it mm. or not. Not even – I don't know if it was sponsored by a kitchenette company. <laughs> but <laughs> interestingly, uh, so so somebody did a big study about this, and they found out that mostly it's it's due to, to age. You know, people remember less about each other's preferences as they get older. Uh, so if you control for age and you find people who are older who are, like, in new relationships, then it looks like they, they actually have – um, you it, know, it, it's, it's, a very small decline. It's not a, it's not a huge decline like we initially thought. Uh, but I did look at, I did some research, uh, looking at how well people could anticipate each other's, uh, disgust sensitivity. So how much am I aware of what somebody else is disgusted by? And that actually got better as relationships progressed. So I think, and, um, some of the literature bears this out is that actually people get better at remembering each other's aversions. The longer they're together, and they get less good, or they start to forget uh, each other's uh, preferences, uh, because you know what you're doing. The longer you're in a relationship, is you're pruning away behavior that you don't like, and punishment is actually really good for that. Punishment's really good for pruning away behavior, not as good for uh, for shaping behavior. Uh, but as I as I I think I've said elsewhere, if you want, if you don't really care about somebody's motivation, let's say I want my Uh, husband to not look at his phone, although we don't really have a problem with this, but I would say I don't want him to look at his phone. And I don't care if it's because he intrinsically finds me fascinating or if he's afraid he's going to yell. yelled at. I just want that behavior. Then I can use punishment or I can use reward. But if I want somebody to be intrinsically motivated towards me and want to do what I want them to do because they want to do it, they feel that they're motivated towards me, then using punishment's pretty counterproductive. And that's what happens in, in really long-term relationships is that somebody will get angry with somebody else because they they don't see the indication of that intrinsic motivation. And oftentimes that intrinsic motivation's been punished out because you use punishment to shape the behavior instead of reward. Mm,
0: that is a, That is a very good, that is a very good point. Um I how, how is this how does this change um can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of early relationships um so this was something else that you were uh, that you were talking about that fascinated me which is the idea that when you first meet somebody uh during the kind of courtship phase during the early phase of your relationship um there's a tendency I'm reading between the lines here to be very dramatic and moody because you are testing out their reactions and their acceptance to your full range of behaviours, which is the opposite of what I would have um, intuitively thought. I would have thought that during courtship you're on your best behaviour and so it's well not to scupper the relationship because relationships are sort of fragile and brittle in those opening stages. Um, but you're just Describing I'm, a different dynamic. Do you know what I? Do you know what I? I, do, I know what you
1: mean. I. I don't think I. Th- I did say that people in the early stages of courtship are trying to suss out somebody's full ranges of behaviors. Mm-hmm. But I don't think being. I, I. I agree with you that people are on their best behavior in the early stages of a relationship, and they are trying to figure out. Um, they're trying to show somebody the absolute best set of behaviors that they have so that that other person will stick around. Part of what is happening in in courtship is that somebody is showing you their full repertoire uh, of, of behavior and they're showing their personality and how trainable they are, if they are trainable at all. And people certainly act more trainable in the early stages of the relationship than they are uh, later. Uh, at later stages of relationships, and sometimes you know, it depends on how early on you think that somebody is committed to you or taken with you. You also see something that red pill people call shit testing, or you can call it testing the bond if you want to use a less value-laden word. And that is actually, yes, acting moody or making unreasonable requests or otherwise being difficult and seeing how someone responds as a honest signal of their feelings and attitudes towards you as opposed to just asking someone, you know, do you love me? Somebody can tell you whatever you want. If you're behaving well, uh, they might be able to act reasonable, but you actually don't know how much somebody cares for you unless you push their limits.
0: Mm, I, that sounds very similar to advice that one of my friends gave me, which is it's good to fart early on <laughs> in the relationship. Um, this might link it back to to the idea of disgust, uh, because you don't you don't want to give the impression that you never release any smelly flatulence. Um, so that perhaps the first time you have you have Jerusalem artichokes or something, um, it might be a crisis in your relationship. Um. I, um, I think when when
1: when Esther Perel and other people talk about That there's not enough mystery in relationships. I think they're mostly talking about pooping, (laughs) (laughs) farting, (laughs) Uh, maybe masturbating. I think uh, farting early on. So, see the difficulty with that is that if you act dramatic or difficult, then in some sense it's also a signal that you're desirable because it's when you're testing the bond in that way. It shows that you're willing to to damage the relationship because you have other options. Mm. Uh, whereas farting doesn't have the same way <laughs> of demonstrating that there's, you know, there's a line of other men who might want to be with you. So I do think that uh, you know, some of the advice that that women are given about uh, never making a weekend date before, you know, a- after Wednesday or, or various things like that are uh, early on. Those are indicators of, having high mate value. You're saying to somebody, uh, I'm high status. I'm socially in demand. A lot of people want my time. And that way you're you're demonstrating your value. We do live in a strange, in some sense, you know, the context that we live in is very different than a more ancestral environment in which you would literally see, uh, you know, if I was, if I was, friends with you, I own, or if I was courting you, I would see how many other people were flirting with you, how many other people wanted your time and attention. But we have more only secondhand uh, versions of that now, given that I we don't spend as much time together in groups.
0: Are there ways in which you, you typically see people um, attempting to shape behavior which are very counterproductive? Um, Absolutely. specific yeah. examples and where you can think of a better way for them to to um to receive the kinds of behavior that they want yeah so uh
1: i i talk a little bit about borderline personality disorder as like a, a disorder of training uh where you're actually too exaggerated and i have a close relative uh someone i i was very close to who uh, did this constantly, and and she actually taught me a lot about how behavior it can be can be badly shaped. So, for example, uh, she gave me lots of gifts, lots of lovely things, but you know those things were not always to my taste. Sometimes I didn't want to keep something forever because I'm somewhat of a minimalist, and so she would ask me, you know, this I gave you this silk yellow skirt, honestly, um, years ago what happened to it? And I was like, well, I got too fat for it. And also <laughs> it, it you know, wasn't very uh, easy to wear. And she just would would really lose her temper with me if I didn't keep something that she gave me or if I didn't like a gift that she gave me. And so rather than training me to like the things that she gave me and value our relationship more, I began to dread getting gifts from her uh similarly, you know, she wanted me to be very, very honest with her. And this is one of the things that I think people are most often messing up in relationships, is, is honesty. So if somebody is has something they, they want to tell you that they're not they're anxious about how you're going to respond and they're w- afraid of your anger or your response, then if you punish them immediately when they tell you whatever it is then the next time that they want to tell you something, they're going to be less likely to do so. In, in essence, you've punished honesty. So you can become upset with somebody. Let's say let's say that somebody I'm dating went out with a bad ex-girlfriend and they they made out. After having drinks together, this has actually happened to me, and because I'm Polly, that's sort of allowed. But I didn't like this woman, and I thought she was she was also very derogatory towards me. She didn't want him to date me, so she was in some sense trying to put a wedge between us. And he allowed that, right? He did. So when he told me this, and he was very anxious and afraid of my response, if I had lashed out at him immediately, then I would have just trained him to be more dishonest in in the future. But what you want to do? immediately after somebody tells you some some bad news and they're, they're radically honest with you, if that's the behavior that you want, some people don't want honesty, is to be incredibly rewarding because the behavior that you wanted to punish already happened. The window in which punishment would have been most effective passed the moment after that behavior occurred. So what you want to do is you want to re- reward the honesty and then later you can rehearse things that happened and make them feel bad when they think about the thing that they did potentially making them less likely to do it in the future. But that moment of disclosure is the wrong moment for that.
0: Mm, that's that's a, an extremely good point. I mean, that's something that I see happening in the political landscape a lot as well, especially among my colleagues on the left, that people are um, rather, people, uh, I, I feel that the right is better at training uh, people in some ways. Uh, that people seem to be, often be greeted with punishment for changing their minds on something or for owning up to a transgression or a past transgression, um, or for a sort of, sh- um, shifting over to our side. And that is, that's extreme, that's just extremely, uh, bad aversive training. Um, every time somebody is conceding something uh, in, um, that you agree with politically, you should be rewarding for them, presumably at that moment.
1: Yeah, I did tweet about this. Also, <laughs> I should really not tweet at all in the current political climate. But I did say that you know people are not doing at all what you would ex- expect people to do. So when Hillary was running, uh, people were bringing up things that she had said many years previous. And things that she said that she evolved on, you know, Barack Obama also said he evolved on some things. And uh, by constantly bringing up what somebody once thought, what you're trying to say essentially is you still think this. I'd like to punish you because you still think this. But if somebody is expressing to you that they they no longer think that, then at least the expression – is something that you want to potentially uh, reward. I don't know if the left or the right is is better or worse at this, but I definitely have been in two different sort of animal advocacy communities. Uh, I've been involved in effective animal activism for some period of time. And then before that, I was just a a regular vegan and I was with an incredibly strident vegan. Uh, I had a partner, fiance actually, who was very, very hardcore. and Like Jamie. Like Jamie Woodhouse, is Jamie a hardcore vegan? I, honestly, yes. uh, I, I yeah, I, I live with housemates <laughs> who have butter. I, I sometimes put butter in my food. Like, I'm I'm dairy is now become like I, I have a whole thing coming out about it. But um, yeah, I'm not as strict as I once was at all. And you know, if somebody gets my order wrong, I'm not going to send it back uh, because th- that's just going to go in the trash. There's a lot of things that I don't care about, you know, in terms of purity uh, that I that I once did. But in any case, I remember. Um, people telling me that they ate eggs, but that they were vegetarian or that they were reducetarians or whatever the case may be. And I would just, you know, tear into them. And uh, what I was doing is people are just unaware of of actually how much the meat they eat. And if somebody says, I'm trying to reduce my meat consumption, you want to be very approving when they say that. because the thought is something that you want to reinforce. The thought, I would like to reduce my meat consumption. And that is is important. You want them to go further, but you have to shape that initial step. And if somebody has, you know, not not just if somebody's punished for expressing that they're trying to reduce their meat consumption because they haven't gone far enough, but also that they have a bad experience with vegans generally, so they're not interested in signaling to you as a group which is another main reason why people do things is because they want to signal to a group that they think is cool mm-hmm. or advantageous in some way. And I mean, I think vegans really shot themselves in the foot. They, they were not at all rewarding for people who were trying to reduce their meat consumption most of the time. And they also didn't become a group that anybody wanted to, uh, I, I'm, I have a piece coming out, um, Sam Bauman and Solani Tatani, uh, have a, a new previous kind of magazine previous guest on on our on this
0: podcast, Saloni. Yes, and, per, yeah. and a real life friend of mine.
1: Oh yeah, and uh, they're they're both lovely, and so um, yeah, I have a piece coming out uh, with them talking a little bit also about how much people hate vegans, and in, in a forthcoming chapter that basically says if you ask people how much they don't like uh, black people, immigrants, asexuals, and drug addicts. Uh, vegans are less well-liked than every group other than drug addicts. <laughs> uh, people really don't like them. But interestingly, people are more li- say they're more likely to, of all of those groups, they said that they were most likely to want to hire and or rent property to vegans.
0: Mm. So they don't like you, but they think you're reliable. Well, there's not, not as much grease under the kitchen hood. when yes. vegans cook. <laughs> I think that is the crucial thing if you're renting out your property to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that I wanted uh, one thing that has uh, you have touched on a little bit, but um, this this kind of shaping of behavior through rewards and punishment. It's it's I find it hard to do with other people. I'm not good at manipulating people, or I I would like to be better at manipulating people. <laughs> I took when I took the Big Five personality test, I scored rather high on disagreeableness. Oh, wow. um, I am a disagreeable extrovert. Uh, <laughs> You're an extrovert? I thought you were an introvert. No, I'm I'm extroverted. Cool. <laughs> well, I I consider myself extroverted. <laughs> I don't know, um, but I um, so I'm really very very bad at manipulating people and tend to always choose honesty over diplomacy, Um, Mm -hmm. I think that 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 is my disagreeable streak. I can't help making the pedantic correction or (laughs) uh, saying what I think, even though I know it's going to upset people and Mm -hmm. and not persuade them, just make them angry. Um, But... Even more difficult, I think, for many of us is training our own behavior. That in a sense, I wish, um, this is something I was discussing with my shrink uh, yesterday. I live in such a permissive environment. Um, I don't have my, the people I work for uh, are, are, are friendly and lovely and my housemates are friendly and lovely and completely non-judgmental. And I wouldn't change that on the one hand, but on the other hand, perhaps if I were around people who are more punitive and judgmental, I would be more, I don't know, productive and disciplined and thinner and Things like that. <laughs> Less often drunk, I don't know. Um. <laughs> I,
1: I live with Justin Murphy, as you know. And initially, when he started living here with me, I wanted him to be kind of my Skinner box to get me to write and stuff.
0: Yes, that's what I need—a Skinner box. I need a person, yeah.
1: Skinner box. Um, and honestly, you need somebody who has a different. I mean, D- Justin like has at one time, you know, been an anarchist. Like those are not the kinds of people who are going to uh, officiate. You know, over your life, uh, I don't think so. So he was, you know, he helped me a lot, and I would tell him what my goals were. And he also hosts these wonderful kind of work sessions where, at the end, you know, you're going to have to tell everyone if you did some, if you did any work in the last four hours or, or not, which I find very motivating. Uh, but yes, I've also thought that I should have somebody around who's, uh, and, and I've actually tried to train my husband to punish me. I've actually tried to train him to be less. Uh, you know, at the end of a day, very rarely does he say, did you exercise today? Although I'm very motivated to exercise, or did you, what did you get done today? Tell me about your, your, what you got done today because he doesn't want that done to him. So he doesn't want to model that behavior for me, but I would really like for him to, to try and be more, um, yeah, punitive, controlling, whatever, try and motivate me more, uh, with, um, uh, what what's the word? <laughs> uh, not not necessarily disapproval is the word. That's right.
0: With disapproval, mm, mm. with not maybe not bringing your bring your tea in the morning or whatever the equivalent <laughs> is. I it's I'm I'm trying to outsource that to a spreadsheet. So I keep a spreadsheet of my time during the working day only. Mm. Partly because as a freelancer, I charge a lot of people by the hour, so I actually need to know. Uh, how much time I spend, um, and I have to send those spreadsheets to my shrink. But he feels this is a temporary arrangement that I I should kind of I shouldn't outsource my conscience to him. Uh, but I sort of want a permanent arrangement whereby <laughs> I outsource okay. conscience. <laughs> oh, so does he? Does
1: he look over your spreadsheet and yes. say good job or yes?
0: I, I would I would love that too. That's really good. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I, it's, it's very helpful to just, uh, measure. Um, it makes you, makes me feel less panicked to just measure and feel, well, I thought that I was very lazy today, but when I look, X number of hours work happened. So, yeah, it, it was actually not that bad. As I, had. I don't know if it's your conscience, but I mean,
1: most people in the world work. To make money at the end of the day, and they work for a tangible benefit. It's very hard to do academia or ivory tower or writing or whatever when you don't know that you're ha- you're going to have a tangible good or even how much money you're going to make or or whatever. It's you know when they when they started having people working in factories, uh, they had people working. You know if you if you give a, a factory worker this is also you know, replicated in animal behavior literature and you, uh, you just reward somebody for showing up, then it's not going to be as good as if you reward somebody for actually like how many dresses did you sew today? Or how many, uh, you know, how many computers did you solder together? And so it's very hard to make goals for yourself like that if you're an intellectual field uh, as to like how many pages are you? I mean, for you, I guess you could say like how many pages did you translate? But translating things varies a lot. I know a, f- a couple translators, mm. and I know that you know translating a romance novel is very different than translating a nonfiction book.
0: Sure. Yeah. I just. I mean, I do translation, editing, writing, uh, and other things, and I just have to measure them by the hour because they're all so different. Um, but do you know? Are you familiar with Daniel Pink's work with his book Drive? No, I'm not. Because I... Well, I'd be interested to know what you think of that because uh, Pink has almost exactly the opposite view. He says that the carrot, uh, if you want people to be productive in a workplace environment, so this is entirely uh, business-related, then um, carrots and sticks don't work. Um, yeah. Because it makes people think that the work itself is not enjoyable. You have to be either threatened if you don't do it or or you're kind of rewarded for doing it and so you're doing it just in order to get the reward and that the motivations yes. need to be, you need to set up your workplace such that people enjoy being there and mm-hmm. so the motivations are intrinsic.
1: Yes, yeah, there, there are definitely ways to think about that. Um, you know, there's a famous study of children, uh, using colored markers that I'm sure that, uh, pink sites, uh, where if they were given a reward for coloring, then they didn't want to do it without a reward. So they became less intrinsically motivated if they were given an external reward for it. Um, but that's quite an unusual situation and that's for an activity that people are intrinsically motivated to do. If you really love, uh, doing what you're doing, reading or writing, you can really love reading and writing, but you don't want love reading and writing necessarily eight hours a day, and so you do need some uh, external, uh, I think, reward, and then that translates into uh, into motivation. There's so much that's it's it's not always possible to distinguish the internal motivation from the external reward, uh, given that internal motivation is a, a stopgap that evolution has given us to get to an external reward.
0: Mm, I, I, lo- I love that way of putting it. I mean, I've never said that before. I'm writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent idea. I was thinking about one way in which people use misaligned uh, punishments and rewards, which is um, I, I when I was uh, doing, um, I, I did a PGC in higher education and um, the one thing that I, it was an absolutely, I'm sorry, but it was an absolutely terrible course. But the one thing that I remember is um, we, I think we watched video, or we had a demonstration where the teacher was, um, the lecturer in this case, it was a university lecturers, um, was berating the, um, the students for the kind of low attendance, the lecture, Uh, not many people were there, and I think people are coming in late. And um, our lecturer told us, notice that what the person is doing is punishing the people who are there, uh, because rather than the people who are absent, and is Mm -hmm. punishing the people when they arrive, rather than whilst they're actually late. So the punishment is completely uh, misaligned. Because, because, sorry, w- when was the when was the punishment happening? Uh, so at the beginning of the lecture, um the person was complaining about those who were late and how a few people. Oh, were. I see. Um so okay. you're punishing the people who showed up on time. Um, yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely have with with students. If if I go to a class and there's a few people there, and I'm like, "You guys are really, really conscientious." I know that there's kind of mixed. It's kind of a mixed bag if a teacher tells you that you're that you're doing really well. some people are deeply embarrassed by having anybody in educational authority tell them they're doing well. but I do remember telling people you know students who were there early that you know they were doing really well and they were really conscientious. Um, and if people were late, uh, I I would sometimes just stop talking and look at them until they sat down uh, because <laughs> I did want to prevent people from showing up late. And I also think that, um, showing up late, you know, it, it's fine, obviously, once in a while. But if students in this particular classroom that I taught had to walk through the front doors and um, right past me in order to get in, uh, it was so disruptive that I honestly would have preferred if they hadn't showed up.
0: So we're talking about training and rewards and punishments. And you said earlier on, I want you to come back to this, that women do more training and men do more Attempting to avoid being trained, being—I yes. I, like the way that there there are these two terms: manipulation, which sounds so negative, and training, which sounds great. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: people disagree about both those things. A lot of people think tr- training someone also sounds uh, really terrible. And, no, it
0: sounds like you're uh, increasing, like, like increasing their skill sets. <laughs> well,
1: you you can do that. I mean, you can really you can really train people. Like this is another thing is that. If you're with somebody, part of the – one of the perks of being in a, in, a, in a serious relationship and seeing somebody every day is that if you want to, I don't know, develop a new habit, they can really help you with that. So you can work together f- towards shared goals. And that's a lot of what training is about, is about you know child rearing and getting somebody to invest um, in, in resources in that way. But yes, I did say that that men um, are more trying to avoid being trained on average, and women are more interested in training men. On average, yeah.
0: I've always, I mean, I need more tips because I've always found um, my, I've always found that men are extraordinarily good at resisting training. <laughs> um, and I, it was a, it was a, one of one of the struggles when I was married um, was that my my husband did not like to do housework. He didn't like to clean. Um, and he didn't like to do the washing up, and in, in theory yep. we shared those tasks, but he would just when it was his turn to clean the bathroom, say he would just put it off for weeks or sometimes months, um, and it would just get more and more cruddy. And I think this also um, ties in with the idea that men are less disgust sensitive. Um, yeah. But it he it really he it really got to the point where I felt that. Sometimes that even he should have been disgusted, but um, but he wasn't. He just allowed it to kind of fester. Uh, um, and if I tried to, if I told him to do it, that was definitely counterproductive. I learned very quickly oh, that yeah. if I said to him, "Don't you think it would be nice if you cleaned the bathroom?" You know, he, was, he would, <laughs> that would put off the cleaning by another like by another week. So and I I I never discovered the best way to train him. I tried, you know, buying chocolates when the bathroom was cleaned. Um but I think they were that it was not cleaned frequently enough for that reinforcement to really take take hold. Um do you have any advice for me in retrospect? Should I encounter the situation again in the future relationship? What are the best strategies? I mean, so for me in my
1: relationship, I I think that a lot of men have bad associations with kitchens and with cleaning because oftentimes they're punished for not doing things properly, uh the way the woman would like. And so that's often uh, the root of it, uh, of, of why they don't they don't like cleaning is because they've been punished for doing a half-assed job, for example. Um, and there are things that are just un- untrainable. So, uh, you know, I'm the I'm per- the person who's who's writing a book about this and thinking about it all the time and and there definitely are things. You know, I've been in a relationship with somebody who um would clean um but would always try and shortcut it and leave a few steps at the end off, would not do like a complete uh job. And then with with Jeffrey, um I I'd never be able to train him to drink more water. That's what I've been trying to do. Um, it's very funny, actually. I tried to get him to drink more water. So I was always like, "You know, do you have a glass of water? And now, instead of drinking water, there's always glasses of water everywhere because he keeps pouring himself glasses of water and not drinking them. So in some sense, I trained him to pour water, not to drink water. Um, but uh, in terms of, of that kind of thing, I think you'd have to try and shape the behavior from the ground up. So, try and do things in very um small increments. And when you're trying to train a dog, for example, to do a an obstacle course uh, that you know, this is what dog trainers do, what they do is they train them to do the last part of it first, and then they work uh, backwards. Oh. So you have to just, you know, because because if if you train the first t- trick and then you give them a reward, um, oftentimes they won't actually move on to the next part of the sequence. If you train them backwards, then they know they're only getting a reward after they finish the last thing. Oh, that's a very And so good this is something, if you want to train something that has multiple steps, I call this giving someone a boost. So in this case, it would be, and this is, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is a terrible thing to tell people to do, uh, to, to go to all this trouble. You know, you can be right or you can get the behavior that you want. Which one do you want? <laughs> so, um, in this case, I think I would do something like where I would do half the cleaning of the bathroom, and then have him do the other half, or a few of the pieces of the of the puzzle that he would have to do. So, like, look, I did this much. You only have to do five minutes of it, and then I'll reward you. And so you can build up from that. Uh, similar, like if you want somebody to plan a date for you. Uh, what you could do is you could give them the number of the of the restaurant. And then, uh, you so you've already chosen the restaurant, you've already chosen the time. All they have to do is that last piece, or even you do all of that, and all they have to do is drive you there. And so uh, what they find out is that if you get rewarded for the last piece, then it's easier to add on what comes
0: before them. Mm, I love that idea. Okay, I'm squirreling that away for future use. but honestly,
1: there are things like, it's just not very, you know, uh, my husband is not, if he's, if he's out doing, you know, yard work, which he's intrinsically motivated to do, but let's say he wasn't, let's say I really wanted him to do yard work. Um, the last thing he wants, uh, when he's outside in the heat trying to, to do something is to come in and have me, uh, kiss him or hug him or even talk to him. He's grumpy and he's sweaty, and he just wants to be left alone. And so it can be very hard to use any number of of reinforcements for somebody after they do something unpleasant, because oftentimes what would normally be reinforcing in another context, like chocolates, might not be reinforcing after a bathroom cleaning.
0: Right, right. That's, That's interesting. Because I think people often don't want to be reinforced or rewarded out of their bad mood. I guess
1: yeah. it's. They feel like they, they feel,
0: want yeah. you to just. <laughs> One time I tried, I did a little experiment
1: with, with Jeffrey. I was trying to get him to like get up and pack. I don't know why he was like kind of laying around. And so I had set up a playlist on Spotify and, um, this worked this one time. I don't think I would go to the trouble of doing this every time. But I have it set up for like a bunch of music he vaguely hated. But then the moment he got up to go into the shower, I put on one of his favorite songs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's excellent. Um, so why is it why is it that men mostly avoid being manipulated when it's actually quite, it's obviously quite practical to manipulate people? Is this just because men are dumb or... Um, is there is I mean, why, why does the man not, for example, try to train you to, um, I don't know, accompany him in the things he wants you to accompany him in or make the food that he enjoys or whatever it might be?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a subset of very controlling men. I know some women who are married to them. Uh, I've talked to these people. I myself have never been with somebody who's... Uh, you know, a kind of micromanaging, uh, controlling man. Uh, I think my grandfather was a little bit this way in terms of what he wanted. And he had my grandmother very, very well trained, you know, mostly through, through punishment. But if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, um, men and women's roles, just that something that's derived from their biology, is women um, have children and take care of them. And then men, in many places in the world. There are definitely places in the world where instead of the father of the children, it's the woman's brother that is the main paternal figure or helps provision and protect them. But in most places, it's it's uh, the, the paternal figure, the, the father, who actually does those things. And so... Um, for a woman who lives in a, a dangerous environment, as women have throughout our ancestral history, the best protection against dangerous men is a man. Uh, the the best provisioner in many places in many places in the world, women collect most of the calories, but meat has got special uh, nutrients in it, and so a woman would have wanted to train a man to provision her, uh, but also be gentle and take care of her and her kids. Men are not necessarily uh, gentle and uh, caring. By, by nature. Uh, some men are uh, and many men are not. And so a woman actually had many more objectives for her partner's behavior. Uh, if a man wants a woman to not have sex with other people, that's actually fairly simple to uh to facilitate, um, depending on you know where you live. You can cloister a woman, you can just beat her anytime she looks at somebody else. Uh, whereas uh a, a you know, you don't really have to train women uh, to feed and care for their children. Most women are are very predisposed uh, to do those things, uh, whereas whereas men tend to be less predisposed to do those things. So, uh, I, I I know that I don't have to tread carefully on this topic with you because you're a a sex differences realist. Uh, but many people have a have a problem with these these things. Uh, another important piece of the puzzle is that. Uh, men had the ability to use force or physical force to get what they wanted from other men or from, from women. Uh, whereas women, uh, women are bigger than their children and that's why hitting children is pretty much a human universal. Um, but, uh, they 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 didn't really have that objective or that ability with their with their male partners, and so women had to develop more sophisticated means of getting the behavior they wanted. And even with children, you have to develop sophisticated means of getting what you want because different behaviors have uh, different um, training that that's good for them. And then you can also think about women being more likely to be trainers as a byproduct of the the nurturing. Instinct. Women train their children to avoid danger, uh, how to forage, um, how to socialize with others. What is the status symbols in that culture? Uh, what kinds of identity aspirations that they should have? Those kinds of things, even what to think, and and uh, in, in addition to how to behave, and those things all require a very complex array of different training methods. And so, women, I think, just. Are, are better at this and, and you can see this in, you know, various different, um, personality domains.
0: Mm. Is, is it also, I mean, I, I know that there's a kind of, there's a, often a certain degree of double standard in the way in which we regard, uh, women's manipulations versus men's manipulations, men who are controlling relationships versus women who are controlling. And I wonder how much of that has to do with strength imbalances. That a man who is controlling and punitive is is just intrinsically more threatening. Um, I mean, if I I don't think any uh, boyfriend um, or my husband that I've ever been in a relationship with has shouted at me, and I think I would hit the door if a partner shouted at me. And I I think that the 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 reason for that probably has to do with um, Threat aversion, risk aversion. Mm-hmm. A threat. You've never been shouted at by a boyfriend or, a, or your husband. I have never been shouted at by a boyfriend. No, I, I guess I haven't dated any Italian men. Um, <laughs> since we're, we might as well go all the whole hog with stereotypes here. Um,
1: well, I think so. So you said that you're very. Dis, you say that you're disagreeable. What does that mean in in, in relationships? You're not disagreeable, as in you know, you you don't kind of test the bond and act difficult gratuitously.
0: I think that, do I act difficult gratuitously? Um, No, I think probably not. I think I'm disagreeable in the sense that I am... You're corrective. I'm corrective, yes. I'm very attached to being right, Um, even in situations in which it's not going to, it's not going to do any good to anyone, least of all me. Yeah. Um So, and that—that uh, that is what—that's often got me into trouble. But I think that that is the kind of thing that gets on into less trouble in romantic relationships generally than in other kinds of relationships, uh, in friendships and in sort of business relationships. Mm. Yes. That I don't back down when—when uh, when often it would be the strategic and correct thing to do, and it would be yes. a good. It would be a good longer-term strategy. So, in that sense, I am—I um, think I'm unusually disagreeable for a woman, in particular. Um, so, um, yes, my extroversion and disagreeableness split was quite was quite striking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is so interesting these different facets of this this thing. So, if I hear disagreeable. Um, you know, I just don't think about necessarily just someone who digs in their heels or who is involved in, in being factually correct. I think about also somebody who's not, you know, necessarily always uh, friendly. Uh, but I think that you are fairly friendly. You just have certain standards that you prioritize more than going along to get along.
0: Um, yes, I'm tactless. I would say that's the disagreeable thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I uh, rather than thinking. What is the so this is why I'm bad for training because rather than thinking what is the thing that the would make the other person feel good to hear, mm-hmm. um, and would make the other person better disposed towards me if I if I told them that, I just tell them what I think is the case uh, very yes. very often, and. Um, I don't have Asperger's or anything like that. I have a perfectly good <laughs> theory of mind. I know that it's not. I know how they're going to react, so I don't have that excuse in a sense. But somehow I'm very, um, I'm very stubborn. Suddenly prone to that, um, and I have noticed. I have noticed some of these kinds of trainings going on in the household where I live with my housemates. Since I've been listening to your podcast, I've been your your previous podcast. I've been looking out for training behaviors everywhere, mm. and uh, we take it in turns to. We each have a night when we. I live with four uh, men, and we each have a night where we make dinner for the others. And every week, every week, yes. At the moment, wow. in lockdown, every week, That's a lot of dinner. It is, yes. <laughs> so most days I mean sometimes one or other person might not be there, but whoever is home has dinner made for them and um we ring a dinner gong when dinner is ready. And I have a That's completely cute. Pavlovian response now. Like full <laughs> saliva production at the side of the gong. Um <laughs> uh, so I think you could you could completely sabotage my diet by just dummying the gong multiple times. Um, in fact, I should probably not have given you that information in case you ever come over and want to mess with me? Um So I, I noticed that you know the meals that are made are more or less successful, um, and um, uh, but there there is never any criticism voiced. Uh, and I actually I actually made a fish dish which was really not good. It tasted bitter and awful. And I said, "Mm, this doesn't taste so great. And Paul, my husband, said, no, 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 no apologies, no explanations. (laughs) This is the rule of this house at dinner time. And, um, Um, Then I said, don't you think it tastes kind of bitter? And they were all like, no, no, no. And I insisted. And eventually they did admit that it tasted awful. (laughs) But I had to really um, wring it out of them. And I think that that is, they don't want to train me to not make dinner. Are they British? Yes. Okay. I don't think that
1: that's why British people do that because British people ha- like so the agreeableness thing. It's not like they want to train people to do things this this or that way. I, the agreeableness is something that has itself been trained and 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 strongly socialized. I remember I was in a grocery store once yeah. and uh, there was a little six month old baby staring at me, and my mother is like, "Don't stare, Colin." <laughs> and I was like, you "Can't." teach your six-month-old baby not to stare at people. Um, But yes, I I do think that that's that's the agreeableness thing. Um, Another reason that people do that – and actually, uh, my husband's family – and my husband's also – you would never guess from his Twitter, but he's – Jeffrey Miller is just like the most agreeable person in person. Sometimes I I joke with him that I'd like to go on a date with his uh, Twitter persona. (laughs) But – Cause I've never met him, but uh, yeah, they're the kind of people you go to a restaurant and you're eating something absolutely appalling and you don't say anything because you don't want other people to not enjoy their food. And so I think that's part of it is like, they're worried that if they say that something's not good, that everyone else who might've been enjoying it wouldn't enjoy it. So I don't know if that's training, but yes, it is. It probably facilitates that as well.
0: Uh, So i I know that you, so you, you a little earlier in this conversation, um, you said uh, you knew you could be open with me because I'm a realist about sex differences, yeah. um, and so I'd like to ask you about some of the kinds of pushback that you have, you have got mm. to your ideas. I know you haven't been really censored and, and that your university is very open to your work, which is excellent um, to hear. I just, I just resigned uh, from
1: my job last week though, so.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Uh, so what's your, what are your new
1: plans? My new plans are to write and then uh, there's a possibility. Uh, I don't want to an- announce it officially, but there is a possibility that we will move. We have an offer. We're just waiting for some things that's in another country. We're just waiting for some things to go through. So the plan for me right now is to write for a year or two and see what happens, and then potentially take up a new academic position, possibly where we are going. So those are the possibilities. Or you know, I think that Justin and some other people I know who've gotten out of academia have told me how much uh, better things are on the other side. I've sort of been on the other side, I've been officially on sabbatical, and I am uh, affiliated with the University of Portsmouth uh, for another six months or so. But, uh, but yes, I, I, did, I did resign. And, and Portsmouth, um, I think UK students are quite different, but also Portsmouth is an ex-polytechnic. Uh, uh, these are students who are not quite as, uh, I think, politically active. So I helped start like the vegan group there. And when I taught psychology of human sexuality, one of the edgier topics that I know most people who teach psychology of human sexuality do not cover is if rape is an adaptation or if avoiding rape is an adaptation. I've heard, um, I can't remember what this terrible anthropologist's name is, uh, but he's talked about how rape couldn't possibly be an adaptation because uh, somebody, consensual sex has the highest rate of conception. It doesn't really make sense because having sex with somebody has a higher rate of conception than not having sex with them. Uh, but I don't think he ever thought that about that.
0: In any case... Would be being good, stra- is it? I mean, in evolutionary terms, it's a good strategy if you can't get anyone to have sex. So, indeed. there used to
1: be this thing called the loser male hypothesis of sexual assault, and the idea that, that that's
0: what I was yeah. alluding to. Yeah. yeah. And that
1: is not borne out. Uh, unfortunately, it was just self report. So, these men could have been completely self deceived. But it looks like the men who report being most likely to have uh, coercive sex with women, that is, you know, where they don't ask for consent and they're pushy. This is not, you know, this shades over into sexual uh, assault Um, because there is, you know, there is a, a, a bit of gradient there. As much as uh, – I think I think I got in a lot – this is why I'm stalling. I got in a lot of trouble for saying that there's not a clear line between what is sexual assault and what isn't sexual assault. Somebody really yelled at me for that once on Twitter. In any case, uh, those men who are the most sexually successful, who report being the most sexually successful, were the most likely to also report uh, engaging in, in non-consensual sex. So it just seems like a way that um, men who are already getting sex uh, get more sex rather than a way for incels to get sex. Ah. whereas it you know that's very common in other in other species. So among orangutans, the the big males with the big face flaps, they're the ones that the females generally want to mate with. And then uh, there are males who look like juveniles uh, who come and have sex with the females, and the females uh, cry out in a way they do not with the regular uh, alpha males because they they don't want to be having sex with these um, quote, sneaky fuckers.
0: Ah, yes, the, sne- the sneaky fucker theory. That's that's actually used in a different mm-hmm. context,
1: but I just like the phrase. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I can see um, uh, if this is the thing about so rape is a is a, a form of violence among other things. It's not obviously just mm-hmm. about violence. Um, it's 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 primarily about sex, but it's a form of violence and. There is this kind of double-edged sword to violence because you don't want people, someone, to be violent towards you, but mm-hmm. um, but if you are threatened, you want them to be able to defend you from violence. Or I guess that is the ancestral, the ancestral yes. thing, and um, that's why it, it maybe it's difficult to always differentiate whether the person is just. Def- uh, Is just going to defend you, or whether that kind of capacity for dealing with violence they have could be turned against you?
1: Absolutely. So there's some evidence that women who live in places that are more criminal behavior, more crime-ridden, there was this was a study done, I think in the United States with zip codes, uh, that these women also had a preference for bigger, stronger men. And, uh, I think it was also more behaviorally aggressive men. And so the exact, the kind of man who's the most valuable to you in terms of helping defend you against potential other men is also the potentially the man who is going to be most likely to aggress against you yourself. And so this is another uh, thing that women had to navigate is let's say you live in a very dangerous environment and you need a, a man to protect you. Then you want a man who protects you Who is aggressive to others, but kind and warm and loving to you and your children, some of which may not be his own. So that's another thing that you see uh, with with mothers who are trying to date again or trying to get into a new relationship that their mate choice changes because the kind of man who you would have a first child with is potentially different than the kind of man that you're trying to be a good father figure or stepfather uh, to your child.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that the 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 reason people give so much pushback to evolutionary psychology. I mean, there are different reasons, and I have quite a lot of empathy with all of them. I think one of them is that people uh, feel that it's uh, unproven, and there is a replication mm-hmm. crisis in psych in general. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, especially nowadays, we have become I I personally have become very skeptical uh, about psychology and um, so uh, I think that a lot of this is hypothesizing and it it's very internally uh, coherent but of course internal coherency doesn't equal uh, truth doesn't mean that it corresponds to reality so um, that's I think that that is one problem maybe Um, and uh, Um, I find it very enjoyable as kind of hypothesizing, but I also don't feel in a position to judge how accurate, uh, those hypotheses are. But I think the other, the other issue is that, um, it is something so much larger than us and outside our control. And it is so much about group identities rather than individual. Uh, individuals and I think that that is what makes people, it, it depresses people, they feel as though they are fated to follow certain yes. yeah. uh, patterns or do certain behaviors and I actually had to unfollow on Twitter, I'm not sure if he's still active on Twitter, uh, Yeo who was his name, Who was an evolutionary psychologist also, because he was
1: Well, he's very, I think he's an evolutionary biologist, but yes, he's very keen on evolutionary psychology. Right, because
0: he was often talking about mate choices, and I just felt, I felt that he was talking about the topic of a lot about which women are most attracted, not on a personal level. I don't mean to imply that he was, um, I don't mean to imply that he was not academic about this, Um, but and I feel because I'm a postmenopausal woman, I feel like, hmm. am I on the evolutionary scrap heap? And it made me so depressed every time I read yay yeah, and talking about this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, that I I just had to unfollow him. That is very very honest. I don't think yeah I don't
1: think I've heard anything that honest in a long time. So so go you. I think
0: people can <laughs> be kind of the truth can be kind of. Depressing, uh, it definitely can be depressing. Yeah, um, so what I'll say about that is,
1: uh, yeah, un- unfortunately, I think the current society puts too much, uh, importance on you know women's attractiveness and how sexy they are, etc. And if you look at more traditional societies, women go from being attractive, young beauties that people want to sleep with, or they're married to somebody and they have status in that way. And then they have children and then they migrate into having status uh, of another kind as a matriarch of a family later on in life. And so for, for women who are unmarried uh, and who do not have
0: children, do you have children, Ayla? Uh, No, I don't have any children.
1: Um, So that it's, it's difficult to find a A model of what is is life's meaning, but I think that you're doing very well living in a communal kind of environment because I do think that that models or that has a similar cues uh, of a kind of more ancestral environment. And there's a great uh, David Brooks article in The Atlantic saying the nuclear family was a mistake, talking about all the problems that have happened since people decided to atomize into uh, single family households. And I do really believe in in more communal living, uh, as I, as I live with Justin and Aria, who are you know very different than me and Jeffrey in a lot of ways. So I think it it can be very depressing for somebody to be constantly talking about um, what you know people who are in the kind of reproductive courting dating stage of life are on about all the time. And definitely, you know, talking to my grandmother and and other women in my family, uh, they develop a certain kind of observer viewpoint to those things after a certain point. But when you're in that transition, I think it's quite difficult.
0: And maybe, yes, and I don't want to be a matriarch. I want, (laughs) you know, um, I don't, I'm not interested in that kind of status. But I think that it's, um, yeah, I think evolutionary psychology can be very depressing. That's one reason. And the other reason is that people feel that it, Because you're always talking in generalities, they feel that it kind of erases individual differences or doesn't pay enough attention to individual differences. So they are afraid of sort of stereotype, that it might feed a lot of stereotyping and that stereotyping might be prescriptive rather than just descriptive. Hmm. That it might be used to say, uh, not just women tend to behave in these ways, but women need to behave in this ways or women always behave in these ways. So I agree
1: with you that it seems to have uh, group stereotypes, but you, you do see this in other forms of psychology as well. I think with evolutionary psychology, what we're often telling people is that what you in your mind, the narrative that you have about why you do what you do is bullshit. And that instead we have a better explanation for for you and it's especially in the current moment where the idea is that no one can explain other people's behavior and then the narrative is reality that all really rubs against the grain uh, of of evolutionary psychology and in addition to that yes everybody wants to think that they have their own story that they're not just manifesting as a as a woman or as a man or as a a young man or as a a, a woman who's, you know, pregnant or whatever those, those things are, that they um, have their own individual uh, story. And it, it's difficult. I, I agree with you. It, it, these are things that we have a, a remarkable resistance against. Last summer, I was in Tasmania and I delivered a talk that I call the Control Sermon. I, I'll publish it and and do a video of it at some point. But the Control Sermon was basically saying that the reason we don't like biological explanations of behavior is another, actually, if we had a real good science of psychology, um, there would be resistance against it is because we don't want to be uh, controlled. And I think that's part of the motivation for this kind of non-binary movement and some other things that have gone on in, in science is because if you say I'm neither man nor woman, you know, people say I can predict your behavior and uh, what sizes of you know parts of your brain are going to be, et cetera, uh, based on the basis of your your sex. They'll say, no, you know, I'm actually not that sex. I was assigned that sex at birth, but I actually have this unusual gender uh, description that I think better fits my experience. And so the the more I think science figures out people uh, genetically and otherwise, the more people will try to buck against those, uh, those categories. Famously, uh, Ray Blanchard and some other people tried to come up with a categorization of trans women. Uh, they say that there are two kinds of trans women. Yes. Uh, in the
0: man who the yeah. man who would be queen in that book. Yeah.
1: That's, that's that book popular, uh, po- popularized it, it made it made infamous maybe that, that distinction as well. And so I think that, uh, Part of the backlash against that was that, you know, those were two rough categories. Not everything about everybody fit into those things. And people mistake this doesn't explain everything with this explains nothing. Mm
0: -hmm. They also, people also hate to be categorized and box, well, they both, they both like and dislike it. Um, I think that people like to be categorized, but they want to choose their own categories. Um, and unfortunately, that is not how um, that is not how grouping works. Mm-hmm. So, I um, it's there. There is also this kind of I mean, being able to split things into categories, being able to split people into categories, is a very useful shorthand. I talked about this. I can't remember with which guests, I think with Steve. Uh, Stuart Williams when he was on um, that there is this character in Borges Funes, El Memorioso who um, F, who cannot generalize at all so every single encounter with anybody is a completely new phenomenon every person, mm. animal etc. he encounters is completely new and of course he ends up in a lunatic asylum. <laughs> you've got to be able to uh, you have to be able to stereotype to a certain degree. You have to be able to sort people into categories, um, and I I feel that that's okay. The only problem is when your categories are so rigid that you can't correct your assumptions when you when you get new information, richer uh, information mm-hmm. about the person. But People yes. feel very trapped uh, when they are in categories that are not of their choosing. And I think that the more expectations that are attached to, for example, being a man or being a woman, um, or the, the more they feel there are expectations, the more perhaps they mistake description for expectations and kind of average description for universalizing description, the more, mm-hmm. the more they want to say, no, I'm non-binary or whatever it might be. Yes.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, people don't like the the descriptions. They don't want to be uh, categorized. I, I yeah. I think that this is it's the same motivation people have. So there was a, a viral uh, um, relationship advice thing that was on Reddit that went up where I think it was a woman or was it a man? I can't remember who said uh, my you know my wife said that she was not going to have sex with me anymore. Like she kept refusing me when I made advances to her. And yet when I told her that, she said that that wasn't the case. So I made a spreadsheet where I recorded every time she said no to sex and what the context was and what the date was. And then when she said that um, no to me again, and then she said that she doesn't always say no, I presented her with the data. <laughs> and nobody wants data collected on them in this way. People want to be able to present what they think. and And that's very angering. Uh, if somebody says to you, uh, "No," actually, what you're, the narrative that you're giving me is is a way that you're self-deceiving yourself, and that you're trying uh, to deceive me. Similarly, there was a, a case that was going around Twitter and Reddit and stuff, where a girl, uh, a, a, a man discovered that his girlfriend was uh, collecting data on him in this way, and so yeah, people would prefer to give you their own story about who they are and what they're about. Mm-hmm. Because the the categories and the data uh, both make you less distinctive, which in the West distinctiveness is status, and also uh, make your stories about yourself that put you in the best light less believable. Mm.
0: Yeah, that is definitely very inconvenient when my stories by myself <laughs> are contradicted. Um, Diana, I um, I. Uh, is there anything that you have wanted to say over the course of this podcast that I haven't given you a chance to say? Mm. No, I don't think so. In fact, I've often worried that I reveal too much, Iona. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, I have it all in spreadsheet. I'm keeping data. We have a we have a recorded we have a record here now. So uh, should you try to pull one over on me? I know. I now know exactly what you're up to what you're trying to do right? <laughs> and what your, what your game is. And I have all the data at my fingertips here. Um, so I will use that to train you.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I can't wait. I, ho- I hope it's for my, for my benefit in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, and I, w- I will put details of where to find you in the show notes as usual. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor. Yours truly, at Ario. We hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and 2 T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.